Let me begin with uh, what uh, progressives are not saying, but which is an obvious truth. Uh, this country uh, originally, before the American Revolution, paid taxes to the King of England, who used the tax money for whatever he wanted to. Uh, after the Revolution, uh, they didn't get rid of taxes. What they did was uh, use taxes to build an infrastructure for everybody. That is, roads, public buildings, schools, hospitals, whatever. All the things that were needed that everybody needed, that was there for everybody. And these days, the best of government uses tax money in the same way. That is, we have an interstate highway system. Uh, Our government tax money supports our banking system so that any business can get loans. It supports our judicial system, which is mostly for corporate, uh, uh, corporate cases. Uh, the judicial system uh, allows contracts to uh, be upheld. Uh, it supports the SEC, which allows us to have a stock market. It supports our communications system. Uh, it supported the development of the Internet. Everything you require to do business in this country uses an infrastructure that comes from the Commonwealth, that comes from what ordinary people have put into our government so that everybody can use them and make, and make use of them. And what that means is that nobody makes it on their own in this country. It is a myth that there are self-made men and women, and it is a myth that uh, businesses just work in a free market. Uh, there is no such thing as a free market. The people who start a business use the Commonwealth for virtually everything they do. And not only that, they use the commons, that is, common resources that are out there, uh, you know, uh, whether it's minerals in the ground or uh, getting grazing rights cheaply from the government and so on. They use our common resources, uh, you know, in making their, you know, their money. The idea that this is uh, a free market is ridiculous. And uh, nobody talks about the constructed market and the role of the Commonwealth in, uh, you know, in our prosper- in prosperity for those who manage to have prosperity. Uh, that uh, lack of that idea uh, in economics, that is, economic theory doesn't talk about that. Economic theory that talks about markets talks about, um, you know, um, uh, you know, profits and talks about prices and costs and things of that sort, but generally not about the the use of the commonwealth and infrastructure. And when you ignore that and you ignore the role of human beings in the economy as such, what you get is, uh, and you would consider companies as if they were uh, human beings functioning, what you get is a view of economics that uh, leads to the rich getting richer and to uh, corporations taking over other countries in the name of so-called free trade. Uh, these whole I- these ideas need to be rethought. Uh, we need to understand what is our commonwealth. We need to understand the role of that infrastructure. And we need to be thinking about economics in terms of real human beings uh, with real contributions and real functions. We live in a co- an economy where there is a huge trap, uh, what I'll call a cheap labor trap. Uh, the role of 
business is to treat labor as a kind of resource. That, that you, know, you hire people to the human resources department. And when labor is treated as a resource, uh, in the bottom line, the idea is to drive down the cost of resources. Therefore, companies make more money if they can keep wages and benefits down. The result of that is that in competing with each other, they compete to lower wages and to lower benefits. And the people who uh, are in the middle class, for example, have not had real increases in wages for about 30 years. And the people who are in the, the lower quarter of our society, the people who can't afford health care, for example, we have 46 million people like that, who may be working two jobs and can't afford health care, uh, those folks are con- contributing to our society in a very important way. They're upholding our lifestyle. That is, if you look at the lifestyle of the top three quarters of the people in the country, uh, they depend upon cheap labor to take care of their children, to clean their houses, to uh, pick their you know take pick their their lettuces and their uh, fruits, to um, uh, work in uh, their uh, uh, stockyards and so on, uh, to make sure that you have cheap food, to make sure that you uh, uh, have uh, a lot of people at low wages flipping burgers. Uh, this is something that uh, is necessary to uphold lots of people's lifestyles. And that there's very little gratitude for that. And there isn't the idea that most Americans would agree with that if, if you work for a living, you should earn a living. Uh, you know, that idea is not guaranteed. Uh, we have an economy that doesn't support that at home, and it certainly doesn't support it abroad. Hmm. Very interesting thoughts. Uh, Let me throw another one at you. Was it not John F. Kennedy who said, the greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds? And I would like to challenge now and offer you uh, an opportunity to respond that the current economic model is out of balance. And let me be specific. There was a time in American... um, commerce where people believed that if they gave their allegiance to a particular company in a community, the company would be a stable, long-term force that would provide people with a standard of living that most people found was adequate. I was a part of that. I grew up in such a small community, like so many other people, where everyone worked at a particular place almost forever for their adult lives. And they were rewarded as such. Nobody got rich, but at least we had the basics and and we were happy. Today, 33 million Americans are going to bed undernourished. They simply do not have enough uh, food in their body. A lot of those are senior citizens who cannot afford both medications and food. They actually have to make a choice at different times. Uh, There are women and men going to supermarkets buying cat food and uh, the tuna in the cat food there because it's less expensive than the human-grade fish and because they're too embarrassed uh, to let people know that they're that poor. At the other end of that, you have about uh, 8 million millionaires. You have 77,000 ultra-millionaires, meaning they have more than $66 million in net income minus the real estate. And you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 million people who are upper middle class and low end millionaires, meaning from 700,000 to a million five. 
those are people who can go without work for a period of time or don't have to work at all if they choose. They can live off their savings. But that leaves the middle class, your professional core, your lawyers and engineers, architects, accountants, uh, professors who make anywhere between a hundred to $500,000. And unfortunately, we keep, uh, and Lou Dobbs in particular, keeps saying that the, our middle class, those are the, it's the working class who are the greatest disadvantaged on this. They're the ones who are still working hard and two people doing the work that have the disposable income that one person generally had 30 years ago. My concern is this, that we have multiple economies and each person is affected by the economy that they're in. And we have people on Wall Street who take no risk on their own, uh, but pump the market, pump and dump, or try to get people in, involved in buying a particular stock that has really nothing to do with the actual value of the company as a profitable entity. And then we get the idea of excessive profits. The people in the hedge funds, the people in the, uh, uh, the venture capitalists, and the people who are the equity partnerships, they want excessive amounts of money. Now, here's my concern, and here's the point I'm making. The people like the Henry Kravitz and the people who are extremely rich, and they're doing a lot of what they're doing off the mastery of debt and refinancing. And the very rich do the same thing. And if you look at the amount of corporate and financial sector debt in the United States today, it's $26 trillion. You throw in uh, federal debt, state debt, personal debt, and you're up to uh, $87.6 trillion. We are awash in debt. Now, this is something unique at this time. We have more debt than we could ever pay. We've bankrupted our, our future on this. And the average person doesn't seem to be aware of this, and no one wants to do anything about it. It's like the worst-kept secret in the world. We are terribly in debt. We're talking about a prosperous economy, and I say we don't have a single economy. We are prosperous in some aspects of what we do, and we're not prosperous in others. And here's a whole lot of people, over 190 million Americans, who, when we finally have to pay the tab, these people are going to be left out on all different levels. And then the reaction is going to be, well, cut the spending here, and uh, so we can offer some entitlement packages there. It's not going to be adequate. We're going to see an enormous amount of underfunded um, health programs, underfunded uh, programs for people who put money aside their whole life, and now it's not going to be there. And then we get the idea that these people running these countries, they are beyond wealthy, one guy, Oracle, just bought a five, 500-foot yacht being designed. That's going to be over a $400 million purchase. We're seeing now the era where so many people have so much money at the upper end of this e- economic scale that they're spending money that we've never seen people spend before. And for the average person that goes to work that's getting paid minimal wage or barely above it, that is getting slammed at all levels and has very little to show for it, This is kind of a grotesque parade of people who are asking, almost like the Marie Antoinettes, you know, waltzing uh, through their parties and buying shoes and jewelry while the the poor person suffers. At some point, there must be some form of reckoning that this can't go on unless, uh, unless we completely desensitize ourselves, that maybe we should start being more responsible in the choices we make so that we're not as interested in making everybody who's got money already rich but rather, why not just be profitable but not all the debt within the corporate structures and don't worry about you know being the hottest stock on Wall Street, but try to create sustainable productivity and sustainable income for the people who really deserve it. Your thoughts? That's a lot. Um, first, 
you talk as if there was a golden age when things were a whole lot better. And uh, I doubt it. Um, I remember when The Other America uh, came out, uh, published in uh, the early 60s, um, around 1960 or so, uh, which revealed poverty in America. And that poverty that was there in the late 50s was even greater than poverty than we, that we have now. That lack of health care was even greater by far than what we have now. Uh, the wonderful uh, companies you mentioned in small towns, which did employ people, had company stores and you know, uh, did all sorts of not very nice things uh, that are even worse than things being done now. So it, I, I think that the idea that there was a, you know, a golden age when things were very much better uh, economically and for the poor simply isn't true, as bad as things are for, uh, for people these days. Um, you know, there have been improvements, and uh, we should be thinking about them and what they've been. Um, there are ideas that are out there that are uh, not out there. Let me, let me talk about ideas that people don't have. People, uh, the right wing talks about um, government uh, as if, uh, you know, uh, Government was hurting people, taking money out of their pockets, et cetera, when government is, in fact, allowing people in business to make money through uh, its infrastructure. But when you privatize, uh, when you get rid of regulation and so on, what happens? The claim is, well, you're getting rid of government, but it's false. What happens is that you're getting rid of accountability and you are uh, getting, going from public government to private government. So if you get rid of um, people who are um, health inspectors or inspect the quality of drugs, things of that sort, in the Food and Drug Administration, uh, you're cutting government there. Uh, but what you're doing is putting the responsibility for this uh, into the drug companies to do their own testing. And there's no accountability. That is, the public uh, cannot guarantee that uh, the drug company is going to do what they say, and that's why we have all these cases where drug companies uh, fake the test and put out uh, drugs that are harmful. Uh, it's very important to understand there's a principle of conservation of government. That is, when you privatize something, what you're doing is you're still getting government, but government without accountability. And that's the message behind Walter Reed, the issue with the hospital going on there, where they privatized services at Walter Reed and lost accountability, uh, you know, because that's what happens. They got another form of government, but a form of government that was there to make profit, not to take care of wounded soldiers. Uh, when you do that, you're going to get a disaster, and this disaster is happening in privatization everywhere. It's not that government is always better at doing things than the private industry. It depends on the particular cases. But there are all sorts of cases where uh, privatization should never occur. And those are cases where the public good really matters. Uh, those are cases where there is a moral responsibility, like the moral responsibility to take care of wounded soldiers. Those are cases where there should never be such privatization. Uh, this is something that people don't talk about, the idea that uh, companies are governments, uh, and they govern our lives. They 
determine what kind of health care we can have, what news we can hear, um, you know, how our, our, our broadcast bands can be used, um, you know, what kind of products can be made, what gets sold to us, what kind of food we can eat. Um, you know, all sorts of decisions about our lives are made by corporations uh, without any accountability to the public. That said, and I, you've made some extremely germane points, do you believe that much of what is happening in Iraq today is happening because private contractors have an enormous advantage as long as we continue the conflict because they continue to make money? Whether we win or lose this conflict or whether it improves or, or gets worse, they're still in there making money. Well, um, I don't think it's, uh, that's all true. But I don't think that's the reason that this is happening in Iraq. Uh, I think the reason it's happening has to do with uh, conservative ideology. Uh, this is an ideology, first, that uh, wants to keep oil going, uh, that wants and that believes that uh, American business should be uh, running business in the world and that the role of uh, the American military is to make sure that that happens, that we have that we control oil wherever we can, that we control resources wherever we can. As long as you have um, uh, that idea uh, running our foreign policy, you're going to have cases like Iraq. What would you suggest at this time to help us better understand the options we would have of getting out of Iraq? What would you What would you say to this audience? Well... Um, I remember during the Vietnam War, the question was asked, how do we get out of Vietnam? And the response was, on ships. Um, right now, it is not clear that uh, the U.S. is going, the U.S. presence in Iraq helps the Iraqis in particularly. It, it, you know, um, it, it may endanger people. And in fact, uh, something like 70% of the Iraqis want us out as soon as possible because in polls taken over there, they believe that the American presence hurts them more than it helps them. Sixty percent of Iraqis believe that it's all right to kill Americans. Sixty percent of Iraqis believe it's all right to kill Americans because they believe that Americans are doing so much harm to them. Hmm. Right? Yeah, so the, the question of how to get out of Iraq is simple. You leave. Well, unfortunately, that is something that they have not been able to uh, get the, our legislators to agree upon, but that well, is for another discussion. It's not just that simple, I don't want to say that, because you do have to have uh, other arrangements where um, groups of other countries are protecting borders there, are um, you know, helping in all kinds of ways to uh, keep the violence down. But with respect to the U.S. involvement, you leave. But what does that mean? It means that the big stream of super bases, huge military bases that we have built and are building in Iraq would have to be abandoned. And we've built them in order to maintain military superiority in the Middle East and to control oil. It might mean that uh, we have to give up control over oil. And that is something that the Bush administration doesn't want to do. I appreciate your insights. We're at the end of this particular interview, but uh, it's really been a pleasure hearing your, your point of view. Thank you very much for being with us today. Okay, bye-bye. Professor George 
Lakoff, professor of linguistics, University of California, previously of Harvard University, and an author of very many important books.